This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Hey, Jess, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you, Ken? Good. Very good. Very good to see you. Um, so where'd you grow up? I grew up in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, current population, I think, is around 20,000. Um, back then when I was growing up, I was a kid, probably around 15,000. Uh, it's about 40 minutes south of Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Columbus, Indiana, it's, I guess it's famous now for, you know, our current vice president. Pence is from there. Okay. I remember him as a kid growing up. Really? Always running for, yeah, he's running for city government and stuff and all, signs everywhere. And, and he was in parades and things like that. So I, I remember him. So it's kind of weird seeing him up there, some hillbilly uh, as a, a vice president. Wow, I would never, I don't even, I don't think of Pence as a hillbilly. Seems pretty, you know, interesting. <laughs> well, if you knew where I grew up at, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very closed-minded there. Not a whole lot of diversity when I was growing up, at least. Um, yeah, it was very, very small town. Everyone knew each other there. Yeah. What, uh, how many, how many Asian kids and how many Vietnamese kids, uh, did you grow up with? There was, well, there's a lot of churches in Indiana. So the Bible belt there, um, a lot of sponsorship from the the wave, the first wave of Vietnamese in 75, the refugee camps. Right. And I think Pennsylvania, um, is it Indian town gap? It is. Right. That's where my family went. Yeah. So that's where mine as well. And, uh, you know, Indiana is like very close to Pennsylvania. And then there was a church that sponsored probably, I think like four Vietnamese families, but we weren't close to them. No, why not? Because uh, my dad was crazy. Mm. Uh, dad was um, South Vietnamese army, um, got wounded in, you know, in combat during the Vietnam War. Uh, but it stems beyond that, you know, yeah. his trauma from, you know, the military. I think it was very rough growing up during his time, his era. Um, I think a lot of abuse, um, you know, physical and mental abuse from his father, uh, from what I hear. And then, um, yeah. Did you, did you know your grandfather? I knew about him. I knew like he was like, he won some boxing championships or something in vietnam and uh i don't know that's no i don't, I don't know much to be honest about him yeah i know he's a player he was a womanizer your your grandfather yes yeah yeah but i think it was typical for that time, time era. Yeah. 
right? Um, it was. It was yeah. normal. Yeah, it was normal. Yeah. Drinker, and he ate, you know, poorly, and he died young. I think he died in his 50s or later 50s, uh, basically from poor diet, right? Yeah. So when you were in high school and you weren't – and I'm going to ask these questions because I kind of – um, I know your background, but I've never really had a chance to really ask it because I think it does have a lot to do with where you where you went later in life and where you are today. So I want to go back and pick up sort of like your high school. And I, I've always wondered, you didn't grow up with a lot of Asian kids. Did that kind of affect um, how you formed in terms of your identity as a, an American or Vietnamese American? How did it shape you? That's a good question. And I, I'm smiling because it did. It had a huge impact. I mean, I grew up, I thought I was white. I wanted to be white. Um, Cause that's what, everywhere I looked was white people. I didn't know it did any difference. Um, you know, I had my family, um, that's it. My friends were Caucasian. Uh, so yeah, definitely it formed, you know, my perception of my identity and did people did people fuck with you well hell yeah they did how how so i remember going to the mall and saying you know a guy would walk by and put do the slanty eye thing walk by or call me gook or things like that um but within circles like in high school everyone knew me knew my sister and i so we I wasn't really messed with in high school. It was more in the outside community, like of the hillbillies and stuff. Um, I, I'm sure there was racism with my school, but no one really said anything to me. Um, no one really picked up on me. Because I do remember, you know, kind of oddly enough, um, a black guy would pick on me. Actually, two black guys. Like there was like maybe four black guys in my school, and two out of four would pick on me. Right. So, which was, I thought was weird. But yeah, it, it did formulate growing up around white people, how I thought, and when, my when, perceptions. When you got picked on, because I think of you as a an, one of the toughest guys that I know today. What? <laughs> but back then, what? how would you react? Dude, I was a pussy back then. Um, I was very timid and quiet. Uh, I would just look at them. You know, I more look as in, I can't believe you, you said that to me. You know, I'm a human being. Why would you say something like that to me? I'm one of you. I'm trying to be like one of you. <laughs> Why are you putting me down? Right. Now um, that statement is crazy because that I'm trying to be like you. It drove me, it drove you and it drove so many of us to join the U S military. Yes. But if you yes. think about it, you if you think about how silly and kind of like morbid that is, it's fucked up beyond what we can imagine, right? Like these are people that pushed us around and in, in you know, as we're growing up, but right. yet we we want to join the ranks of. I mean, so why do you think we? Why do you think young Vietnamese men would join? the military join the marine corps for of, of all the branches of services that yeah. you're you're right. hanging out with all these tough white guys and why would you do that 
Well, I think it goes beyond, you know, I, I, I'll answer your question, but I think it goes beyond. If you think about society as a whole, they want to be lighter skin, right? The complexion, everyone's striving it. And all the ethnicities, you know, strive for that, it seems like to me. Um, okay, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I got. I'm sorry, something happened. Um, anyways, yeah, all, all ethnicities seem like they they strive to do that and, and be lighter skin complexion. I think for us, it's well. Actually, I can speak for myself. You know, a Vietnamese guy growing up, you know, middle of America, seeing these white people. This is like kind of like my idol. This is what I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be like because these white people are they're happy. They got nice girlfriends got nice cars nice homes whatever the case may be i want to be like them right and what best to join the military right and especially the marines the few the proud the marines the most difficult military branch there is right hey i can be like one or i can be like them i can be the best what what made you join what inspired you to do that Uh, not to go to jail i think out of my identity crisis i guess as a teenager every teenager has one i think i was a big a big struggle with my dad dealing with my dad and his ptsd his drinking his abusive nature behind you know all those issues um i rebelled a lot and got in a lot of trouble um and then uh ended up in foster care uh for a while uh, i think wait, i started I, foster care. i didn't know, you know that. that no you know that? i didn't know that so wait Foster care, how old were you? 15. So how did you get into foster care? I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Uh, I think, you know, teenagers, kids, yeah. they act out. Um, they, don't, they won't talk about things. They act out like negatively. They get in trouble. They um, do del- delinquent behaviors, whatever the case may be. And that's what I did. I was delinquent. I stole scooters with a group of my friends, um, the gas, the gas powered scooters, and we would ride them and we got caught by the police on a stolen one and put on probation. And I was in the probation office with my father because I was a minor. My parent had to be there. My dad was like, I disown you. You are not my son. Yeah. Yeah. To me, I was like, that's normal shit. Right. My dad said that stuff to me all the time. I disown you. I disown you. You're not good enough. I was like, yeah, okay, be Vietnamese, whatever. Right? But when I'm, I see the Vietnamese culture and I'm trying to be white, white people don't do that. Right? <laughs> so I was kind of happy, dude. They took me out of the home because I'm trying to be white. But who but took you dad, out of the home? The government. Was, yeah, the county. The so county when, you're, when your dad said, I disown you, they decided to take you out? Yeah, they knew that. The, just the, his demeanor, the way he was mm. saying it was very like, it was, it was very serious. And it's like, hey, your son is getting in trouble because of your ass, you know, basically. Um, you know, I had a part in two, but, you know, I was a kid and they, they put me in a, a, a kid's shelter. And then from there, I just got funneled through the system. Wow. Um, from 15 to 18. You didn't, I'm surprised you didn't know that, dude. No, I didn't know that. So, I wow. I, I guess I don't share that with everyone. It's like, hey, you're in foster care. So did you? how often did you see your mom and dad? Depends, man, what situation I was in. I, I didn't see him much. 
uh, throughout those years because I think they were shameful. Um, and frankly, I didn't really want to talk to them. You know, I just, I remember being very depressed as a kid. It's like, why don't my parents just love me? Like, I see my boy, my friend who's white, and his parents are hugging him. I love his you. Par- I'm sorry? I love you and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just those, you know, being vocal instead of, you know, cussing you out so you do better because I'm cussing you out because I love you. You know what I'm talking You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. How our parents did it. Um, so I, I saw that and then I just, I wanted that. And then in foster care, obviously I never found that. Um, but, you know, and I found that in the Marine Corps, though. I found that love that I was yearning for yeah. as a young man, 18, 19 year old man. Um, I found that even though, I mean, remember our drill instructors, they would scream at us and just yell at us, but they took care of us. They made sure that we ate and we slept, yeah. you know, our basic necessities. Yeah, you can feel the love. Yeah. You can yeah. feel the love. Um, yeah. You know, when you start listening to so many of these military, um, U.S. military stories of why people join, so many people come from broken homes. So many people come from fucked up backgrounds. And you realize that um, people are just really fucked up before they go. And then when they get into war and out of war, they never really cleared up what was going on before they got in the military. Yes. Yes. So many of us are fucked yes. up and, and we never cleared up and we just let it fester, but we'll get into that. I'm sure in the, in the next, um, in our conversation today, that that's primarily what I really want to talk about is the mental health side of, of, of life. Um, yeah. You hear all these um, SEAL team um, guys, and it almost feels like the harder you grew up, the more shit you wanted to get into, right? Like, guys like me, I didn't have it as bad as you, so I didn't want to punish myself in the military. But then you hear about, like, your story, all these other guys that are in SEAL teams, and you're just like, wow, the, the more punishment, the better, So because they want to feel something. Yeah. So then, okay. So you're still in foster care. You go to school. You're going to high school. Um, you're not seeing your parents a whole lot. Uh, what kind of grades were you getting in? Why would you? How could you even finish uh, high school to join? The <laughs> That's a good question. I didn't. Oh wow! I didn't, I didn't graduate high school, man. I didn't know that. I, yeah. Uh, when I was seventeen. I think I got in some more trouble. I think I was smoking weed or something and then just kept on popping in your analysis. Uh, yeah, I think that's what happened. Anyways, um, so I was always kicked out of school, man. I mean, I, I didn't like cause harm to anybody. I caused harm to myself. Um, but I was never that type to go out and like have chaos and, you know, whatever. I just mm-hmm. smoked weed and I like to drink. <laughs> um yeah. And then the uh, probation officer wasn't okay with that or foster care workers weren't okay with that. So I ended up doing time in boys school. Um, so I went to a, a facility, um, a lockdown facility. It was like, it was prison. I was there for two weeks. And then after that time there, they sent me to a lower level boys home where 
re-entry into, you know, community job. And I got my GED there. Um, then after my GED, I got out, I turned 18 and started working in a factory for a couple months and living in an apartment, uh, then living in an apartment and sleeping on the floor and just partying, you know, I had my car, I had my apartment and I had my factory job. What, what kind of factory job did you get? I made car speakers. Okay. So if you think about Indiana, very industrial, a lot of car manufacturing and mm -hmm. stuff evolving around, you know, manufacturing for cars, you know, there's always factory jobs there. Um, and then I, I, you know what, I experienced racism there in the factory. Um, but I was at the point in my life where I wanted to take action for like people saying things to me. Um, this guy said something and I said, excuse me. And he, but he wouldn't repeat it. He didn't have the courage to repeat from me. And I'm glad he, I'm glad he didn't at that time. Cause then I think I would have physically assaulted him yeah. and got in a lot of trouble. Um, but, but yeah, that's how I got my high school diploma, GD. And then at what point did the Marine Corps pop into your head? My, my best friend um, joined the Marine Corps. Uh, I knew you were, were in the Marines. I knew your brother was in the Marines. And like a lot of, I just thought the Marines was cool, man. You know what I mean? Uh, and after he went, he came back, he changed his life. It's like, I'm going to go. But I couldn't because I had a GED. They don't accept GEDs in the Marine Corps. Um, so I had to take a year of college. So wow. I, I went to IU Bloomington in the university and did a, some, some summer semesters there and went to some community colleges up there as well to get enough credits to offset my GED so I can enter into the Marine Corps. So, yeah, that was my, my change in my life right there. All right, so you... You go you go through boot camp and uh you did you sign up as an infantry person or is that something that was just handed to you as you enrolled no i didn't start as infantry i start as enlisted boot camp mcrd san diego signed up for the engineering field because okay. my mind was i just want to do four years and get out have some type of skill right for a future or something like that um but i end up doing boot camp and becoming a bulk fueler basically a gas station attendant <laughs> i fucking hated that job i felt like the biggest pussy in the world here i am in the marine corps what do you do i'm a bulk fueler what the fuck is that our pump pumping gas and kicking ass is our motto that's wow. stupid um did so, you have to you know did you have to go to school for it yeah, man, believe it or not, man, you got to go to school to learn how to pump gas. <laughs> and how long was the school for? I think it was like a month, man. Yeah. And more school is like a month in Fort, Fort Lee. Uh, once, you, once you got to the fleet, how long were you um, doing bulk fuel for? I did my entire first enlistment, four years as a bulk fuelman. I had no idea. I thought you were, I thought you were no 311 your first I, year. No, man. You bro. Because never when I came never. when I came in, you were processing out, right? I got out uh end of ninety-six. Oh no, your brother was processing out. Because yeah, I came in at ninety-eight. Yeah, he got out in ninety-seven, end of ninety-seven, I believe. Okay, okay, okay. I got November ninety-six. Oh, I see. So I came in ninety-eight. 
Um, did my four years as a bulk fueler. Um, I did four years active. Uh, finished my tour in Iwakuni, Japan. Then came back stateside and then moved back home to Indiana. Oh, you you I, gotten out? I got out. And then my parents divorced uh, while I was in still. Um, so I came back to Indiana with my dad. My mom ended up moving out to California. This is probably in 2002 time frame. And then um, when I, my last year I was in, 9-11 happened. It was so weird, man. Wow. I was in Wikunia when yeah. 9-11 happened. Um, I was in the barracks. And, you know, I think it was, it was late at night. I remember I was drunk. I was passed out. And then my roommate wakes me up. He's like, hey, man, look at that. So I look on TV. <laughs> I see these planes flying into these buildings. Oh, okay, cool. I didn't think anything of it. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, whatever. But next day, it was very odd. The Japanese were all manning the perimeter of our base, uh, the Japanese military, and just looking at us as we as we were walking by, because it was serious, right? Yeah. Um, but that time, I didn't think it was that serious. It was just kind of surreal to me. It's mm -hmm. like, okay. Um, but then we had to increase our security measures on the base. So that's when it started getting real. When they, when they gave me a 50 cal. You know, was like, shit was real. I was like, there's, okay. They're giving me a bulk fuelman, a 50 caliber, instead of a, a gas nozzle, right? So I knew that the shit was real. The shit was crazy. I mean, what do you mean um, they gave you a 50 cal? You went down to the armory and they handed you... A 50 cal? I mean... No, they they got Humvees. They mounted 50 cals and Humvees. It's like, you guys need to set up a tour, some type of security schedule to guard the base. Gave us live rounds and a 50 cal. When you think about it, we're not infantry guys, right? And then we're, we're operating a, a heavy-duty machine gun, a heavy yeah. machine gun that we haven't messed with probably for years. Yep. So that was kind of scary, man. Uh, you know, just that thought, you know. Yeah, because we shot M we shot 50 cows in MCT, right? Yes. Yes. But it's like what, like a day or two with the 50 cows. It was like a big, it was a big deal a at the time. Yeah, it was just like a day. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. like jumping up and down. That's the only time you ever was you ever shot a 50 cow. Yeah. If you weren't oh yeah. three. That's right. That's yeah. right. So it, I decided to get out. I did my four years. So I had to get out. I want to go to college. Uh, went back to Indiana. Lived with my dad and his girlfriend. Um, joined the reserves, the Marine Corps reserves, and they activated because that was um, Afghanistan was going on. I think two thousand two, and then towards the end of two thousand two uh, into two thousand three, the uh, the operation, you know. Iraqi freedom occurred. Yeah. I can't remember what it was called when we came over there and then they changed the name again. Anyways, it was Iraq. Iraq 2003. The push from Kuwait all the way to Baghdad. I was part and, of that. And, and you went back in as, as still a bulk fueler or you went in with under a different MOS at the time? Well, I was in a reserve unit, so I was still a bulk fueler in a comm unit, a communications company. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know. I didn't know any of their shit. Um, but I just... I want to deploy with them. I want to be with the boys, you know? So deployed with them, a comm company, uh, 1st Marine Division. And, you know, here's a bulk fueler. They're like, we have no need for you. I mean, you're a bulk fueler. You're supposed to be like 
you know, logistics or mm-hmm. in a wing support unit, you know, but in a division, you we really don't have a need for you. So they put me on perimeter security with a Marine Corps band. Do you know, during, during wartime, the Marine Corps band, their function is perimeter security for division. Did you know that? No, it's so weird and counterintuitive. Yeah, so- the band, Marine Corps band. That's their job. I think back in the day, I heard like back in the day, like like year, like hundreds of years ago, like the, the bands would go out into the battlefield to, I could be way wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To play the, you know, to, yeah. to keep the, the troops motivated, right? Right. And that would make sense. If you put the band on the perimeter, it's sort of like. Yeah, yeah. I see, I see the correlation you're making. Yeah, yeah. But whenever... Uh, the president declared, like, you know, operations were over. The band would play. They brought their fucking instruments to combat. Can you believe that shit? It was that weird, dude. Nuts. <laughs> it was so weird. So, wait. So, you get to Kuwait or you get where you, you go to Iraq? You fly into Iraq? You, you fly into Kuwait. Kuwait. Okay. What, so, what happens? Uh, it's, a, it's like chaos. Like, you get processed. You scan your ID card with the armies there to process you. Um what what month what month was that in 2000 end of 2001 or 2002 how how quickly do they reactivate you i th- i think january is when they activated january 2003 is when they activated us wait so that's a and year then- later then right cuz september 11 2001 was yes. 911 so yeah. like over a year later, you get reactivated and called in for um, the push. To push. Yeah, I call the push. Yeah. So in January, you get back in. Yep. Of 2003, and you go to Kuwait. Correct. And then I think in March, that's when operations kicked off. That's when we, we stormed, started storming north towards Baghdad. And you were in that push? You were in that storm? I was in that push, man. That was... They gave me a Humvee, and again, they gave me 50 cals. I don't know, man, this 50 cal thing. I was stuck with 50 cals again. Um, you know, I was a sergeant at the time, so I was in charge of perimeter security for my sector, my sector to tie in with the, the Marine Corps band. Um, <laughs> and then we would we drove, I can't remember how many miles it was, but we drove in Humvees, tanks, and whatever we were in, um, it was all blacked out so no headlights nothing and we used night vision goggles to drive keep in mind iraq is obviously not like the united states where there's street lights and stuff and yeah. paved roads it was dark as shit there i don't you know the roads are not like ours they're they're like we had to drive off-road in some spots and some spots there were no roads and the thing is i've never driven a humvee mm-hmm. yeah humvee's like a car but i've never driven one and to drive one with night vision goggles is quite a task. Uh, I've never done that before, so I learned real quick. Were there IEDs around at that time, or it hasn't really? There was not a proliferation of IEDs yet. No, there were mines at the time. Mines, okay. Yeah. So were you worried? Like, because probably now when you're driving in those kinds of environments, you think about IEDs, but in 2003, it wasn't it wasn't a big thing yet. It, it wasn't a big thing yet. I, I wasn't. You're, you're more, I was more concerned about dudes shooting at me 
versus anything like that. Because I knew the threat was the threat was people shooting at you it was you know the Iraqis. Uh, tanks weren't a big threat because our tanks destroyed them. Our anti-armored, you know, it's like that you can't mess with us, man. Um, basically, what I saw was a carnage from the infantry guys. By the time I got on scene, I mean there was like it looked like hell just broke loose. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, and that's from from our guys. Yeah, yeah, our guys just fucking shit up, man. We destroyed. We destroyed some shit. Um, I think the most interesting thing I saw was I saw a, a Cobra heli- attack helicopter. It was it was cut in half. It looked like it, there was no tail to it. It was just sitting there. I don't know how the hell that happened. It was just sitting. Um, you know the scene in um, Full Metal Jacket where they're storming through the city um, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's on fire? Yeah. I, I saw that's what my experience was in Iraq. How many on fire and shit like that? How many how many Humvees are going in to the city in your caravan? Uh, like convoy to my convoy, uh, I don't know, maybe like fifty. But we were all rolling up. Multiple units were rolling. Man, there was like thousands of us. It was like a sea of us. It was crazy. If I was, you know, the enemy, I'd be scared shitless. Um, that's why most of them ran. Most of them didn't fight us at that time during the push. Yeah, so there was no the, return fire or anything crazy. Well, th- th- there was, but not like you know a full on battle. Yeah, um, they, they, they they were scared. I mean, Saddam screwed them, dude. I mean, he didn't train them well, and they weren't well equipped. They were hungry. They really didn't want to fight. Mm-hmm. I think there were more. I think most of the guys are like, what can the Americans offer us? More like, oh, you know? shit. So when you yeah. rolled into the city, were there already bases or anything? What was set up for you to... There was nothing set up. We, when we rolled in the city, it was us setting things up. I think we rolled to like um, the bat, it's called the bath headquarters, mm-hmm. Saddam's, you know, the bath party um, to, until their headquarters. It was a huge compound, four wall compound. Um, it fit the first Marine division in there. Holy shit. How many guys? That's a lot of people. Yeah. That's probably like, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people maybe. I mean, right? so, so you just roll up and there's like two, 3,000 and like who's setting up the beds? Who's setting up all the food and the logistics? No, dude. No, man. We're living out of our vehicles still. We're living out of guard towers. They're guard towers. Um, it was very austere. It's, it's fascinating. Like, yeah, just live out of your car, man. It's like camping, right? So you you have all your gear with you, and for how yeah. many days are you living out of your, the Humvee? See, I don't I don't remember time frames uh, very well. Um, I do remember this: we had to wear mop suits. So mm-hmm. it was March. Tell, tell April. me what a tell me what a mop suit is. A mop suit is uh, basically like if you think about a. Um, like a mechanic, he wears a suit, right? He works on cars. Think about that, but camouflage and lined with charcoal. So we were afraid of a chemical attack by Saddam. So we wore these. And imagine wearing rubber boots, a chemical suit, and fighting and moving around. It was so uncomfortable. And, and with headgear. Um, well, when there was, you know, 
when we had to don the gas mask. Yeah, yeah. We, we had to wear it. Yeah. But we're more on a protective posture whenever we, we didn't move around once we had our gas mask on. So you're in that gear the whole time, like once you get into the bath party headquarters? Yeah, once we got there, that's when we took off our mop suits. So I'd probably say uh, a couple of weeks we were wearing mop suits. I don't remember the timeline. So somehow I kind of forgot timeline of what actually happened but i remember the mop suit's very uncomfortable because it started getting hot yeah it breathe. doesn't breathe it doesn't breathe yeah, yeah. Mop suit. Yeah. I, I remember wearing those mop suits too and and at pendleton it wasn't that it wasn't that hot because you you know i went through by may or june it wasn't that hot but yeah. i can't imagine in iraq in the desert <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah once we occupied there and uh, I don't really know politically what was going on. Um, I just know like no one was shooting at us anymore. Um, you know, there's no pop shots here and there. I mean, basically um, we we're secure and everything, but we did take a tour to um, the hanging gardens of Babylon. I, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. Yeah. Right. But what do you mean? That. We, what do you mean? We took a tour like 2000, yeah. 2000 yeah. guys took turns to go check out the hanging gardens. How, how did that work? Uh, so I guess the, the CEO of my unit had to go do something around that area. One of Saddam's um, palaces were near the seven, uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon. And we took a, a two, you know, Humvee convoy up there and uh, we just toured the place. We toured Saddam's palaces and it was kind of weird, man. <laughs> you know, um, just touring Iraq after, you know. Wait, what What did you see at the palaces? Uh, well, most of them were looted um, by the locals, but just marble and gold lined walls and um chandeliers that were had gold in them they were just immaculate they're so nice there's pools saddam lived in some pretty nice palaces man yeah. and when you guys toured it were there already u.s marines on guard and you know secure? yeah okay yeah. and then yeah. so what your company you said your company commander and you or um his security detail and i was part of it okay so you guys walk around and just i mean was there other uh, officers there that kind of like took your company commander and said hey let's walk around check out the i mean what do you how do you, you yeah. just roll in park the car yeah. walk around yep yeah there's no senior yep. officers saying okay and then they take you on a tour or you guys are just free to go wherever you want we we, well, we rolled together you know in like little groups and just walked around i mean we had a rifles and like a magazine with like 30 rounds that was it because I guess our mindsets were, okay, we've been through the worst. All right. There, there's no more fighting as of now. So we're cool. But boy, were we wrong, you know, thinking back. What do you mean? Like, well, me and my, I was a sergeant at the time. And then me and Lance Corporal would, would roll around just <laughs> he and I in a Humvee in the local population. I would take, we got so many care packages that finally caught up with us because we ran out of supplies because uh, we're moving so fast during the conflict, eventually things caught up with us. I would take all the stuff that, that we would, didn't use, extra razors, you know, all this extra stuff caught up with us. We, we didn't know what to do with it. We didn't want to burn it. So uh, we went out in the city and 
we would drop off boxes of supplies to the locals. Wow. But fast forward down the road, you know, insurgents repopulated areas, you know. So wait, fast forward like a year later or a few days later? No, a couple of years later. Okay, because that's on your next tour, right? Yeah, yeah, that's my next tour. I I came back. So I came back from Iraq in one piece. Didn't see a whole hell lot um, because it was so fast. The Marine Corps infantry fucked things up by the time we got on scene. Um, So then I think I, I continued school. Yeah, I continue school. I want to get my um, a bachelor's degree. I want to be a dentist. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like a, any typical Asian, I guess, right? Some type mm-hmm. of doctor or some shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I wanted to do it. Nothing, not because my parents, parents yeah. kind of pushed me. And at that time, my mom was in Indiana. I mean, my mom was in California. My dad was still in Indiana. I left my dad's home, moved up to Indianapolis and went to school and finished off with a a bachelor's in arts and humanities with some, you know, cookie cutter fucking degree because I, I hated to be on the civilian world. I, I just, I didn't, I thought civilians were nasty. I thought they were disgusting. I had no discipline, had no moral courage. Yeah. So, I want, I want to get into all of this stuff in terms of, because I've always stood from afar because I transitioned a lot earlier than you did when I got out. And I never really fully bought into, I mean, because you were in a different situation with the units that you were part of. I wasn't in those combat units. So I had a very different mentality. I didn't, I didn't feel, I tell my friends this all the time. I don't, I had the discipline from the, from the Marine Corps and the mindset, but when it came to certain indoctrinated ways of thinking, I never really, it never caught on to me. And I'm, I feel like such a Californian and, you know, very liberal in my thinking. And I always watched you and I'm like, when is he ever going to slip back into (laughs) civilian life? You know? Right. So, so, okay. So you do college and you graduate and you never really feel like you're part of the fabric of civilian life. Right. Right. Definitely. But, But you're still a reservist. Yes, I am. Okay. Navy, so, Navy reserves. I jumped over and joined the Navy reserves. But why didn't you? Okay, you, you didn't do any ROTC programs. I mean, during the time, or you just no. stayed as enlisted reserve. Enlisted reserve and just get a degree and then get my commission. I went on a commissioning program um, at the local recruiter's office to become a Marine Corps officer. Um, so as soon as I graduated, it took me like three years to get my degree. Graduated got my commission and got married for the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. Got her pregnant. Well, got her pregnant and then got married. married yeah. Um, just some girl I met working in a factory, you know, while I was going to school. Uh, then uh, off to Quantico, Quantico, Virginia. Wait, but you're still commission. You were still, you said you were a Navy man. You're in the yeah. Navy. Yep. So, <laughs> you're getting commissioned wait I'm, I'm confused you you're going to quantico for marine corps officer training right correct but how correct. are you part of the navy at that moment because after i got back from iraq um with the reserve unit i was so disgusted with the marine corps i don't know why i just was so i decided to rebel and join the navy reserves and finish out my college degree being under navy reserves and then when I got commissioned, I obviously had to break that contract with the Navy, which was fine. 
because I was going active duty. Um, you know, went back to the Marine Corps, went back to my roots, um, but as an officer. Wait, so how, how, long, how long were you in the Navy for? Like two years. What? And did you, but how do you know? How do you know what to do in the Navy? Like, dude, how I do you? I didn't, I didn't give a shit what you know how to. I was a Marine, dude. And yeah, my year knew I was a Marine. I know it's they, the weirdest thing. Why would any Marine go? I mean, it's like God. I hate to say this come up to my navy brothers <laughs> but you don't go from the marine corps into the navy unless it's you know you want to do seal teams and but did you have to learn to to, to the uniforms over like isn't there a different protocol in the navy or you just sign the paper now in the navy how did that how does that work out well there is a, a different protocol but i didn't give a shit about that protocol but I you have to but you have to go I to just, training no Drill weekends. I went. I guess what I'm asking is, you don't have to go to boot camp all over again, and not from the Navy, no. Because number one, because if you go Marine Corps boot camp, that supersedes everyone. Every I I can't imagine it does. Yeah, I can't imagine you have to go to Navy boot camp again. But if you go to Navy boot camp and you want to become a Marine, it's a totally different animal, right? Right, right, right. Because you have to go to both boot camps, Navy, and then you go to um, Marine Corps. (laughs) So I mean. When I was in the Navy Reserves, dude, I was such a, I thought I was a badass, dude. I had this mm. ego about me, and you can't fuck with me. And the chief, which is like a, I think it's E7. E7, yeah, the yeah. chief was E7. He would tell me, dude, I'd look at him like, yeah, right, whatever, dude. They would try to counsel me in this and try to talk to me. The Marine Corps, they put your foot up your ass, right? Yeah. But I knew they were a bunch of bitches, so I just kind of <laughs> did what I I just kind of <laughs> did whatever I wanted to. But when they, when we had a project, a mission, I was in it, man. I was in it. And that's why they, I, I stayed with them. That's why they kicked me out because they knew I was undisciplined with them. But when it came down to like a mission, I was all for it. I was there. What was your MOS in the Navy? I was a builder. I was a CB, a construction worker. Um, we built a sub, one of the biggest project I did while I was in the reserve was we built a subway. Like Not, a, no. Like the sandwich shop subway. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're joking. You're fucking with me, right? <laughs> no, dude. Seriously, we did the framing for a subway. What, what was that all about? Because <laughs> it was on a, it was on a military base, and it was a project. So they so, had us do it. So fucking random. I know, right? Subway. I'm like, oh, you built. I think <laughs> the first thing I'm thinking is you build a submarine, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> I can build a subway. <laughs> yeah, man. Subway, sandwich shop. Um, yeah, so after that, then I, I went to Quantico, uh, went to boot camp again. Well, that's, yeah, but that's for officer training, right? Yeah, which was a joke because um, I went enlisted, right? Yeah, so is it, it's, it's not more, uh, like, uh, it's not harder? It's harder as in physical. They push you harder physically. Really? Why why do you think they do that? Because you're leading by example. You can't fall out of a run or fall out some type of physical event. You know, you're a leader. You you have to be up there showing your Marines like, hey, we we can pull through this, you know, whatever we're doing physically. And there's some leadership stuff, um, but mainly a lot of physical so yeah yeah so how many there so there has to be a lot more people that fall out and and drop out of marine corps officer training than oh, hell yeah boot camp training right 
Yeah, but you have to get screened prior to going, first uh, of all. Okay. So you can't meet, like, I think you have to have a first class P- PFT. Really? Yeah, you have to, which I think is like, I can't remember the criteria, but to me, that was easy because I was, I ran the most perfect scores. Um, so boot, officer boot camp was simple for me. I enjoyed it because I've been to boot camp before. And another thing is, I'm, I'm known as prior enlisted and there's other guys as well that are prior enlisted there. And we always bonded. We'd watch these college kids get all scared and shit from the drill instructors. Hmm. Um, well, ironically, there was a drill instructor there that was there on was when I was enlisted boot camp was a drill instructor there as well. So the same drill instructor was there. Well, he wasn't my drill instructor, but he remembered me. Whoa. I don't know how the fuck you remember me. Yeah, thousands of kids going through. Yeah, how the fuck do you remember me? Because I, I didn't get in trouble at Marine Corps boot camp. I didn't stand out. I barely got IT, you know, got hazed, yeah. doing push-ups and stuff. Barely. Um, so he remembered me. So as an officer, you know, a candidate, he would fuck with me, but I knew it was like all good fun. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. scared of them. Fucking, you know, I was equivalent rank to him um, pretty much. Wait, so while, while you're go, they're called Mustangs, right? Yes. Okay, so yes. as a Mustang, are you in boot camp wearing your your insignias? No, you are no, just stripped you're, down. You're scum of the earth like everyone else is. There, no right? shit. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the staff there, the drill instructor and the platoon commander um, there um, on staff, they – we. The Marine Corps was so small, man. They knew my, my previous bosses or they knew, you know, something about my career that I had enlisted. And, it, and, it was, it was and cool. At, at that point, was it only one tour you did in Iraq or you? It was one tour. Okay, one tour. So they knew, like, you already, you went to the other side, you came back. So there had to be some level of respect for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, you know, it was, they still yelled at you and treat you like shit. But it was funny. I mean, I had a... I would lose my bearing a lot and just laugh at them. So I thought they were funny. They're, they're cussing me out, and I'm looking at them like I know it's a show, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, would, I would like smile at them. <laughs> I was like, right? Just imagine doing that in, in listed boot camp. They you can't. You. They'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. You would never dare to do that because you really don't know what the next minute will look like, especially in the '90s. Like you, they put your, they put hands on you. Yeah, during your yeah, era, yes. In the yeah. 90s, in my era, yeah. I, I went in in 93. Yeah. Oh, man. I was stretching one time. I was I had both hands on a on a on a on a bed, you know, the, yeah. the and then the rest of the platoon was doing something else. And I was the only guy I wasn't thinking. I I, I was stretching my calves out oh, no. before a run. Oh, no. All yeah. of a sudden I, I feel like this hand on my back and I look down and my shirt, my my t-shirt's ripped off. He oh just like grabbed God. it and he pulled back and he ripped my shirt off. And I was like, oh yeah. Sergeant Rosenbaum. He was an yeah. intense dude. Yeah. So you're not wearing any insignias. You don't, you're not a, you're not a, you're not, a, you're, not a, you're nothing. You're not an E5. You're nothing. Yes. But you do have that respect that these DIs give you, these drill instructors give you. Right. Yes. And, yeah. and, uh, other than the physical side of it, the mental probably wasn't anything um, close to the enlisted side, right? Yeah, it was it was fun, dude. And you know what the fucked up thing about it is? We had breaks. 
we had libo on the weekends and what? officer boot camp yes that yes crazy we would have I th- we would have saturday off and then we'd come back on sunday so we'd go out in town and get a hotel and just get drunk drunk as fuck and then go back yeah and then wake up like at four o'clock and do all that shit like regular yes you have a that- two-day liberty and then you go back yeah yeah isn't that crazy, dude? And then do the DIs, they don't call you sir, do they? Because you, you're not commissioned yet, right? No, they call you candidate. You're you're not a recruit, you're candidate. They call candidate. you candidate. Yeah. Candidate tran. So wait, yeah. do warrant officers go through the same thing? Or they no? go not through commission officers, um, you know, boot camp. They go through their own little training. But they don't go through a boot camp. It's more like they transition into CW, right? Yeah, yeah. It's more like a, 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 a an officer type gentleman's class they, they go to in yeah. Quantico. So what what was your? Did you have to redo your MOS? What what was the whole deal with well, that? So after boot camp, you know, I went back, uh, and then you go to TBS, the basic school. All commission officers have to go to the basic school. Okay, but I got my degree got my commission, then went to the basic school in Quantico. Um, it's a, it's about a year long. And all you do is, I think it was a year long. Um, a little or a couple of months, whatever, but you learn all the MOSs of the Marine Corps. Oh, and wow. that's, yeah. Yeah. You, you primarily infantry, uh, but you get a lot of exposure, um, and to the everything. School. Wow. That, infantry, that, yeah. That sounds like a, that sounds like a very, for me, somebody like me, when I hear that, I think about how valuable that is. And, and here's why, because I mean, I was an admin guy, let's face it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I'm going to tell you with my admin training in the Marine Corps, yeah. I can't, I can't tell you how invaluable that experience has been for me throughout my entire life. Right. The organization, yeah. the way you think. But I can't imagine going through S1, S2, S3, S4, logistics, supplies, every branch that covers every maneuvering yeah. and, and work workings of the of the way the Marine Corps ran. Right. And how long is that school? I think it was about a year. Um, but then after that, you get selected for your specialty MOS, your so MOS. You, so you don't know what your MOS is going in? No, no. Wow. So you have to go through TBS. Right. And then, and then they kind of like look at what your aptitude is and then they figure out where your strengths are. Yeah, I guess it's more, it's more on you, what you want. And then if you're, you know, the commander the platoon commander, um, that's in charge of you guys believes like you're a good fit for that. And there's a slot available. Um, you go. So that was 2006. So if you think about the conflict that was going on, Fallujah happened already. Ramadi, um, the, the heavy fighting over in Iraq. Um, I think the heavy fighting was starting to die down around 2006 timeframe. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I picked the infantry. There was, there was so many slots for infantry because a lot of guys were getting you know getting killed over in iraq or why would you why why did you pick infantry 
because man, that's got to have big balls to do that, man. Right. I want to be tough. I want to be the tip of the spear. I want to be. When you look, when you think back on that decision, do you think like that's some young man game shit? That's some young man thinking. Yes. But now it's more of like, I'm proud. I'm proud to be, I was an infantry officer, man. You know, how many people can say that? The big deal, man. The big fucking deal. I mean, everything from the physicality of it to the mental, emotional demands of that position. It's not many people that can, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Then then I went to uh, my M1 school was infantry officers course, like one of the hardest military trainings in the world. Right. Um, Good time. There's a lot of things I cannot say about that training. It's, it's secret. I think really? We had, yeah, we had an oath. But Nathan Fick, I think his name is Nathan Fick. He wrote a book and he revealed some of our secrets of our training. Um, How do people look at him? Like, that's uh, a piece of shit. It's like, it's you up. sell out. Yeah. You sell out, dude. I mean, it was hard, dude, but um, yeah, it was hard. It was hard. It was hard training. How many um, weeks of it? I think it's, I think it was three months, but basically it's an add-on to the basic school if you're going yeah. the infantry route, because yeah. you learn a lot of tactics already, you know, in the basic school, but you just fine-tune infantry at the, um, you know, infantry officer's course. Yeah. You know, completed that, and then I, I selected my duty station in Hawaii. Um, that's when actually you came to see me. Remember? Yeah. Yeah, man, K-Bay. Yeah, but I wasn't there very much. I was always either training and getting ready for a deployment um, and then went to Iraq back in 2008. Came, came, went, went back to Iraq in 2008. Okay, and when you go back to Iraq in 08, was that a, a wartime thing? Or... Yeah, yeah. Worse. yeah. That, was what? Was, yeah. that was the second Gulf War, right? If you want to call it that, yeah, you can say that. Yeah. So what happens? So you're in your unit and things you're training for a year or two, and then the war breaks out. No, it was still it was still ongoing. Still ongoing. Okay. From so you, 2000 from 2003. Three. Still going. Yeah. Yeah, but the dynamics have changed. Now we have IEDs, right? Yeah. Now we have insurgents. Insurgents. Yeah. Know? We have you know, a smarter enemy that's not going to face us head on. They're going to hide with the population and attack us from there. They go hide back in the population, right? So that was, but in 2008, it was kind of dying down because there was a transition of power that was trying to occur um, between, you know, with the Iraqi officials and Petraeus. uh, We were under Petraeus at the time. Um, You know, I was a first lieutenant I was a tune commander at the time, and I had an area of operations that I was working with the Iraqi police. But what we did there was we bought off. We bought the enemy was our friends because we paid them. Hmm. Um, I remember carrying a backpack full of American cash, and every month we would pay these people called Sons of Iraq. And these Sons of Iraq were basically people in these communities we paid them to watch over their own fucking communities. That's some stupid shit. What? Wait, yes. How much, how much would you pay them? I don't remember, man. Uh, how much I paid them. I can't remember. 
I mean, was it was a thousand dollars, five thousand, thirty thousand. It's like a couple hundred, I think. But we're doing this around the entire Iraq area, you know. So that's so hundred dollars. Yeah, buying off goes a long, goes yeah, a long, long way. way. Right? Yeah. You're just basically buying off community leaders. Yeah, pretty to much. Not, to not fuck with you guys. I mean, yeah, pretty much. Hey, you're our friend. We'll give you money. And don't shoot us, or do, or have people not, or have people stand down. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's read between the lines type shit. But come on, we're giving you money. Don't fuck with us, right? That's shady, dude. Dude, how does that? I gotta. I mean, I I keep wanting to ask you at every junction here, but I gotta ask you, how does that make you feel about your service? How does it make you feel about like the reality of? war the reality of like this idea of like service to our country does that fucking flip everything upside down yeah it does but my mindset is like man fuck this shit i want to kill these people i want to you know that's i'm a marine dude i'm ready to fight these people i want to kill these people there's so many times i had to temper my guys because they want to kill them why um, did you want to kill people? Why did you want to kill them? Come on, can't think about our training, man. From day okay. one. I get that. No, no, no. I totally yeah. understand. I completely understand day one training. I get the indoctrination. But what did they do to make you want to kill them? Or is it just like in your natural training, you're in your habitat, you're like a lion, you just want to eat them? Yeah. Well, that. that did they yeah. provoke it? Yeah, I mean, I think it was... I think Americans we're ethnocentric, dude. It's just that's just the way we are, right? I mean, you come to this third world country, and then our agenda is trying to push democracy off of them, and they're not complying, right? So, I mean, it starts from the top. I hate to say it, um, they they wouldn't comply. You know, these are just yeah. When you when you say we're trying to push democracy on them at your level, at a lieutenant. What, what can you do to push democracy on, on these people? Like, what are you there to do? Well, my specific job was to train, you know, the police uh, as a security force, but in similar methods that we do. But the democracy piece was like securing elections, all right, so people can vote. Um, trying to set up a way of life that's kind of similar to ours. The thing is, these people have been ruled by a dictator for forever. They are used to the strong hand on them, right? Mm -hmm. And here we are trying to do democracy. It's just not going to work, mm. you know? And it hasn't. <laughs> you think about it, it still hasn't to this day. Yeah. Um, so our mindset is like, fuck these people. They, they, we know they're just using us. Fuck, man, give us a chance to just shoot them. Shit, man, that's heavy. That's heavy. Yeah. All right, so how long are you in Iraq for that time? Seven months. Seven, Seven months. months. And do um, you see a lot of action? Uh, only action that was in my platoon was my vehicle hit an IED on my side. Fortunately, it was a, it was a failed, uh, just the blasting cap exploded. So the blasting cap goes into the bigger explosive for the, to ignite the bigger explosive. And that Whatever my, Yeah, just the blasting cap went off. You and could have like, died. Yeah, potentially. You could have died, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and then got back to the states, uh, back to Hawaii. Um, I think that's when you came actually mm -hmm. to come visit. Then I started the work up again to get ready for Afghanistan deployment. 
Oh shit! So seven months later, seven months later, after I get back, I go to Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is starting to heat up at that point, right? Because we, yeah, were... yeah, I think we were there in what two thousand one, right after nine eleven. Eleven, um, and then we were starting to have another presence again. I went back in two thousand nine, I think. Yeah, I think it was two thousand nine. Things were pretty heated. We were in Helmand Province. Um, and excuse me, uh, the time. So I have a promise. If you think of, um, just geography wise, uh, Afghanistan is surrounded by mountains and in the middle is valleys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helmand promise was, was in a valley, a very fertile area. Yeah. Very good for, um, growing agriculture, poppy, pop exactly. And that's the cash crop of the Taliban. That's where we're at. Um, the area that we're at, my company, I was the first lieutenant executive officer at the time of that area of deployment. My company was the closest to a Taliban village, um, Marja. And we didn't have enough forces to go take all the Taliban in that village. It was, it was a big village. And a company, companies like 100 some, some guys in there. We couldn't have taken the village over. We had to wait for battalions to come take it over. So we were there for a couple of months on our own. And our mission was to basically go close to the village as possible, fuck with these people, and come back to our base. Fuck with them and come back? What do you mean by fuck with them? Like just go shoot probe, them up? Go probe their lines. We, there's no way we could have taken over over that village. We know that. The ratios were bad. There was like, you know, thousands of people there to like a hundred of us. There's no way we could have fought them. So we'd go close to their homes, you know, their village, shoot at them, get little firefights, and then go back to our base. Yeah, you look, you give me that funny look. What's, yeah, yeah, what's the point of it? Yeah. Exactly. Good fucking question. What is the point? Um, I don't know, man. I mean, to show a presence. Because we knew a big operation was going to occur with multiple battalions coming in coming, to, clear yeah. the, to clear this entire village. So why are we, as a company, going to go fuck with them? And I was cool with my boss. My boss was kind of a laid-back guy. And I was an XO. I ran the shit there. I'm not yeah. saying to float my boat, but... Oh, but XOs run the shit. Yeah, right. So I ran the shit, man. And then... My, my boss was like, battalion would call and he'd be like, yes, 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 we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, and suck on their dick. I'm like, come on, man. So why the fuck are we going out there for? All we're doing is putting Marines' lives in, at risk for no and did, reason. Did anybody get hurt? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude. This, this deployment was hard on me because... This was our third deployment. My third deployment. And I, as an executive officer, you know, I, I had to yeah. implement what my, my CO implemented, you know, orders he gave me and the battalion, right? And then our orders was to do these stupid-ass patrols, uh, you know, four line of troops. You know, that's what we called it. Um, and get these little firefights. And we knew there were IEDs out there. There was a shit fucking shitload. We knew it. So battalion's going to have us send patrols out there into IED area for what fucking reason? So the, my opinion, my, my thought process is looking back at it. It's because these officers want to look good on paper, right? Like, Hey, the, the Marines went out there, killed X amount of people, blah, blah, blah. 
you know, report and, to your regiment, you know, make, and it's make, yeah. indiscriminate firing at the people at the, in the village. It's not indiscriminate. I think it's, we did have rules engagement. Um, you know, it's, I mean, think about it, dude. If someone rolls up in your fucking yeah. house and try, so you're going to shoot at them, right? And try, they're trying to come and come at you and attack you. You're going to do the same thing. Jesse, they, yeah. when I think about our experience and my service four years in the Marine Corps and your time, I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. And I think about all of the veterans that are homeless in LA or throughout the United States. It just breaks my heart. And I is something that I really wanted to talk to you about today and get really into the work that you do today yeah. um, at the VA and, and get your yeah. thoughts on it. But I feel like I haven't gotten enough. I mean, I could go for four hours talking to yeah, you. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I, I see what you're trying to say in transition to, but, you know, that deployment fucked me up. Okay, I so mean, that third deployment to Afghanistan really fucked you. That was the one that changed yeah. you. It changed me because not necessarily because of the direct fighting I was involved with. Yeah. It's more of like ordering these men to an area where I knew was dangerous and I couldn't do anything about it. I had to order them to do it. And then one guy, uh, minor, I mean, he was a good, he was a good guy. He was a good Marine. He was a corporal. I met him when he was a fucking private. I watched him grow up in my company. He went out there and got blown the fuck up. Um, so basically the ID split his body. He was still alive. Um, you know, reports where the guys were shoving their knees up in his abdomen, trying to stop the bleeding, you know, um, cause they had hope, you know, this is going to live. Everyone liked him. He bled out and died. Uh, it, half his body was still on the battlefield. So the guys had to go back out there and get the rest of his fucking body. So they went back out there. They got it. They brought his body parts to me. Um, it was so weird, dude. It was like, I still remember this day, the smell and uh, it was still warm. It was heavy. Your leg is heavy, right? I don't know how many fucking pounds it is, but it's heavy. So I, I the sergeant came out and just gave it to me. I mean, I didn't want him to look in the bag because he already had a fuck with it. I grabbed it and I was looking for, you know, some serialized equipment that, because he got blown in half pretty much. I got to find his rifle, his night vision goggles, his radio. So I'm going through all this shit and like, there's his leg here. It's nice and warm. Helo's landing. They want his body parts. Oh, so it just so, happened. Yeah, it just happened, man. So after that, you know, I was pretty, I was, a, I was an officer, man. So I'm hardcore, man. It, yeah. No motion. So, oh, shit. Sorry, minor. One down. So the rest of the plunk continued. I think we ended up losing like um, two or three more guys. But when they when they died, it was like nothing to me. I was like, okay, carry on. What's our next mission? Right, our next mission. Um, so, you know, I get back uh, after the deployment. Um, back to Kaneohe? Kaneohe. Then I'm up for orders. I choose 29 Palms, California, because I want to be an infantry trainer on 29 Palms. Because I, I've been to Afghanistan, so... I was there, got a lot of marital issues, drinking was bad, had a lot of had nightmares, didn't understand what the hell they were about. 
um, drank my ass off. Did you ever started. see, did you ever get help, uh, mental help at the time? No, dude. Nobody, <laughs> and nobody caught it? Nobody. It wasn't, PTSD was, it wasn't, it, it's known in, the, in, you know, the mental health community, but it just wasn't common in the military community at that time. You know, we're at the height of Afghanistan right now, man. And you talk about PTSD, what the fuck is that? You know, we didn't know what that was. Um, you know, you know, I wasn't in direct combat per se, right? So I do the 29 Palms saying I'm training every day, getting infantry battalions ready to go to Afghanistan and do what I just did, right? So I'm playing war over and over every fucking day for the next two years. I started drinking a lot, flipping out marital issues. Um, then I started getting suicidal. Um, what, what do you think was going on in your mind at that time and during those two years to make you go, I'm going to kill myself? Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, just, I guess the value of life, you know, being infantry, dude, that's, you kill people. I mean, we don't value life, you know, in a way. So I don't know. And somehow transitioned out of my own life. And I think alcohol abuse had a big part of that as well. And um man, how many how many guys do you think go from that? Those infantry guys go from that to become police officers? Probably a lot. A lot. I think a, a lot. A fuck ton. Yeah. I mean I mean I, mean, I know some I some I know some now that are fucked up. And they don't get and they don't get cleaned up. They don't go through mm. therapy. They don't address their trauma, do they? Some, most don't. Because if you do address that, they're not. They're going to hire you, right? It's a barrier, dude. It's a huge barrier. And you know, if you want to go that that type of field, that type of work, yeah. Um, I didn't even try. So I got out, dude. I, I was flipping out. I was getting in trouble. MPs are at my house all the time. I went to, I got 5150 psychiatric holds like three times. I, I tried ODing on pills one time. That didn't but, work. But at the entire time, where's the commanding officer? Where's your commanding officer saying, all right, Tran, go get fucking help now. Go down to medical and figure this shit out. Did anybody? It wasn't, it wasn't common, man. Wow. Like, go, 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 all right. So go, go see the, ther the, you know, the psychologist, psychiatrist, get on meds. Okay, just go, go, go do that. Go do that stuff. So it was kind of like, okay, not a big deal um, at the time. It wasn't taken seriously, you know what I mean? Um, but it got to the point where I just, I was too out of it. I needed to focus more on me. That's when I think, so I was a captain at the time. Yeah. Um, my boss was a Fulberg colonel, and he was like, he's a good guy, a former Green Beret. Did he get it? He got he it. Eventually, he got it. He, he knew his first impression was Tran needs to work more. That's what he needs to do. He needs to focus on work. So they gave me all these projects and tasks, and that just wasn't was making it worse for me. Yeah. yeah, and then they knew like I'm done. He's done. He needs he needs to help. Let's get him over to the naval. You know, people have him help him out. Medically retired me. You know, uh, got out. Didn't have anything. Went through a divorce. Filed for bankruptcy. Ex-wife took the kids. Didn't have shit. How, how um, many kids did you have at the time when you got out? Two. 
Okay, so how old were they when you left or when you got a divorce? I think Jesse was like seven, I think. Justin was like maybe five. Can I, I can I can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Do you look sure. at them do you look at them now and see the effect that you had on them? as a result of where you were at the time? I, I don't think they saw, well, maybe they did see a lot, but I don't think they saw a lot. A lot of things would happen at night because I didn't like to sleep. I would stay up and drink. So all my craziness happened at night. So I don't think they saw a whole lot. But I mean, and, you had to have shut down psychologically. You, how could you have been, how could you have oh. been present with their children? Oh, I wasn't, you're right. Yeah, 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 I wasn't. Now, do you look at them now and go, "They're detached"? Are they detached? Are they? Are they? Do you think they've adjusted, or do you think it's there's still like some trauma from your trauma passed down to them at the time? I think they've adjusted because of the career, career field I went to. Um, you know, I took a year off when I got off. I got out of the Marine Corps. I lived with my mom. That was kind of humiliating, right? Captain, then with his fucking mom, no career goals, nothing. Um, rode my bike around a lot. I joined some veteran groups to ride my bike, to ride bikes. Then uh, I just decided, like, I want to be around veterans. I want to. Um, I, yeah, I, I just want to help people, and then uh, I got accepted at USC to a social work program. Mm-hmm. And then while I was there, and you know, I took I took it very serious. What what made you decide to go to USC for that pro for a program like that? What what program did you go to USC for? So, uh, I got a master's in social work, but the reason why I, I had a lot of options, you know, I had friends that were applying to Harvard and Ivy League schools and getting their MBAs and things like that, and uh, I just didn't feel it in my heart. I was more, I felt like a compassion to do. I was compelled, I had some compassion to do something to like help people, help somebody. Because in the Marines, my job was to find the best ways to kill other people. So I want to do the opposite. Um, so, and I didn't want to go down the doctor route because I was like early thirties at the time. Um, I thought being a doctor would take too damn long. I didn't feel like it. So I, I saw social work. It's like, okay, it's a master's program. Um, get done in two years and start working. So I, I did that. Went to USC, got my master's. Um, my goal was to work with the VA the whole time at, you know, mm. while I was at school, but the cars didn't work right when I graduated. So I started working for the county, um, LA County. So I worked for LA County inpatient psychiatric unit. So I dealt with like the craziest you see on the side of the street that get picked up. I did that for about four years. Um, then I got my license. Then now, presently, I work at the VA. I work with homeless veterans now. Okay. So I'm, I'm back home. Circle. Yeah. Everything, all my experience in life has um, come to have, this. It's come to this. Yeah. Me being a supervisor, uh, working with homeless veterans. So when you say you work with them, what do you do? You sit and listen to them come in and talk to you? Uh, you know. They're, yeah, they're not that stage yet. I mean, maybe they are, but they're more of they have needs. They're homeless, 
So my priority is to hook them up with housing and benefits. So, you know, the model is housing first, then fix everything else. So my job is to hook them up in that aspect. Uh, we're usually, my facility is, it could be the first time a, a veteran, you know, sees, you know, help gets help is through us. We're the first step in the process. What's the average age of a homeless veteran? Well, what I've seen, uh, mid middle age, 50s. Okay. And what, what are the stages? I mean, do you know off the top of your head, like, how does it go from being, you come out of the Marine Corps, come out of the military, you go get a job, but how does it go from there usually to becoming a homeless person? Right. From what my experience is substance use disorders, um, PTSD, right? Um, some type of unresolved trauma. Uh, but I've seen a lot of substance use disorders. Like in the military, you know how we drink in the military. We, we, get, we get down, right? Imagine. I remember putting away a 24 pack in one night, a regular, a regular, yeah. I couldn't even finish. I can't even finish a beer today. <laughs> 24 bottles in one night was a normal thing. Sometimes I go to 30 bottles in one night. I mean, it's yeah. crazy today. Right. Right. But that's like, that's what we did. But imagine the guys that continued that when they got out. Right. It's, it's fun. It's fun for a while, years maybe, but then it catches up with you. Failed relationships, income, loss of jobs, housing, whatever. Yeah. And they're homeless. Um, you know, recent, recently I've been getting some guys with PTSD. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the Vietnam War guys have kind of circled around and got help or they're dead, right? Um, They've aged out of the system. Yeah, pretty much. But now it's my generation and yeah. I'm starting to see it. I'm starting to see them. Um, you know, untreated PTSD, PTSD, but what I think what's been good about society is this push for getting help about PTSD. Yeah. It's normal now. It's yeah. Yeah. It's accepted. Not normal. It's ex more accepted than it was when we were growing up. Right. But according to the PTSD clinic, um, psychiatry director, only 20% of mm -hmm. veterans with PTSD get help only 20%. And then the average suicide a day from a veteran is, I think the number is like 22 or something like that a day. Imagine that 22 veterans a, a day, day kill themselves. Kill themselves. And okay. what the veteran population constitute what, like 1% of the population or something very small like that, you know? Okay. So when you, when you think about those numbers and you look back, man, I get, I feel so guilty when people say, thank you for your service. Right. Like, okay. Like, we did some time in there, but yeah. do you, oh, fuck man. I know this is like not a political, a politically correct thing to say, but do you feel like it was worth it? Like for these people to have, I don't even know if I'm asking the right question, the pain and the suffering that it causes. Okay. You lose a limb, you lose, you die out in the battlefield. That's one conversation, right? But to, right. but to come back on this unresolved, like mental issue and mental health problem, it's, that's not worth it. That can't be worth it. Right. You know, 
You do have a good point. What I've noticed, guys that are freshly out, you know, within a couple of years or so, they're very anti-military, you know, majority of them. But what, from what I've seen, the older guys, they have, there's a lot of pride involved. Mm-hmm. Even though their life is shit right now or whatever, they're homeless, they still have pride. They have pride. So I guess this, the cycle occurs, you know. I mean, you get out being angry at the military. It's like, you guys fuck me up, right? Um, then eventually it comes to, you know, pride down the road. For some, I guess, that's, that's what I've seen. And, you know, to add all this shit, you know, to add up all this, like, weird thought about it being worth worthy or not, we're Vietnamese. We're not even we're not even white. I mean, that's something like we don't even talk about, right? I don't know if any of my Vietnamese American Marines have ever talked about this shit. I I have a um I have a group call with with my boys, the guys that I served with in '93. We all there's like maybe a dozen of us, and we keep yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, so we're gonna be talking to them. I'm gonna be talking to them, my brother, and two two of my boys. There's a, quite a few, but two of my closest guys. And I'm going to bring this up. It's like our identity as Vietnamese Americans, it's weirdly tied into the history of the United States, right? But I don't, it's kind of weird when you think about it. Obviously, our family didn't come from the communist side. We came from the South Vietnamese um, army. But at the same time, it's like, why are we fighting some – why are we in – in why are we in that predicament? Why are we like in the military, the U.S. military? It's weird if you think about it. Well, whenever I, I have thought about that when I was in, I always have to justify what I'm doing in the military. I justify as I'm thankful for the U.S. because they allowed my family here, right? They gave me my family political freedom. You know, that was my justification. Then it turned to as I was getting jacked and getting strong and, you know, built, it's like, I'm doing this for the Marine Corps. I never did for myself. You know, I was always trying to justify somehow, somehow, some way for other things. Never me. Um, That came later on in life, but yeah, you're right. Thinking back, like it, it gives me more pride. Like, Hey, I'm Vietnamese American. And I was a Marine. I was a Marine infantry officer. I was a Marine captain. And I'm Vietnamese American. In that that percentage is even even a lot smaller now. Right? Yeah. Not, there's yeah. not even very much. So yeah. there's like pride. For me, it's pride. And I I continue I want to continue to serve others, you know, with my experiences. And I wouldn't trade my experiences for the world. Sure. Sure. Right. And even even my trauma and or my upbringing, my crappy fucking upbringing, which I mean wasn't that crappy, but there's a lot of abuse involved. Um, I would I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'm on a constant search to find out this whole being a Vietnamese person experience, right? Yeah. Like I'm on this quest to kind of define it, like kind of figure out like what does this all mean to be Vietnamese? You know, my podcast really revolves around that. It revolves around questioning what people do at the highest levels uh, in the Vietnamese community, both inside Vietnam and outside Vietnam. Um, And to serve as a U.S. Marine, as a Vietnamese person, I think 
many of us have not really spent the time to think about our service and really yeah. an- and analyze our motivations. Right. And so now I'm going back to talk to um, Marines or, you know, politicians that served and trying to figure out like, you know, what was going on in our minds and would we, how do we kind of make meaning of all of it um, today after so many years, you know, some of us two, three decades after we've gotten out, just analyzing what, what, what it did. And the trauma that our dad's generation went through in the military, they, cause I have uncles who served alongside us forces. I mean, uh, one of my uncles was a, um, he was in the Phoenix program for the CIA. So he was like this oh. hardcore CIA, um, yeah covert like he understood he he had the training uh, and i I think he went to quantico um he had some business in quantico in in the 60s and um you know our histories with the united states is so interlinked but when you start to kind of like float inside of the academic world with vietnamese americans you see a totally different picture it becomes you know they your eyes are open to a another way of thinking. I don't think we have enough time in this um, sit down to go into it. I yeah. want to talk more about your experience at the VA today. Um, but at, hopefully we'll get on another, um, hopefully you come into my studio in person after COVID and when we can have like another, you know, I hopefully we can go for three hours the next time because there's so much more that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. This is our yeah. first time and, you know, we're going to hopefully we'll do more. We'll do more and we'll get more into um, the different aspects of being Vietnamese, being in the Marine Corps. Um, but let's go back to being you being um, somebody who's working in the VA as a as a former um, Marine. When you see the trauma uh, of the homeless vets that come in today, what what, what do you think about? That's me. I was them. There was a point where I was homeless. Um, I was living with friends. Didn't have a place to go. Um, I had, I met a Vietnamese family in 29 Palms that would feed me. Um, yeah, they owned a barber shop, and I just went in there and kind of like pleaded with them, hey, can you feed me Vietnamese food? And they they fed you, me. Wait, were you still a captain at the time? Yeah. Well, all my money was, was going to my um, soon-to-be ex-wife. She cleaned the house, man. And uh, I even applied to be a janitor when I was a captain. What? Yeah, dude. And the fucked up thing about it is they had me come into the interview just to find out why in the hell is this captain trying to interview for a janitor position. And how did that interview go? Obviously I didn't get it, but. Cause you were fucked like, up. Cause you, you came off as being fucked in the head. I guess, but they were like, I felt like they were just, they wanted to interview me just to make fun of me. So what the fuck does this captain want to be a janitor? But, but wh- where was the job? I was on 29 Palms uh, base. Oh, oh, it's on on the base. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but then I met you know people out in town, and uh, they took me under the wing. I'm good friends with them today. Vietnamese people um, fed me, and that bond was automatic. 
Mm. You know, just because me, because I'm Vietnamese, right? So, really, really good people, and then um, that warms my heart to to think about that. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So every year when I go visit, I'll go visit and bring him like a box of like pears, Asian pears or something. Yeah. So, um, they know, like I, I appreciate them. Well, I hope they know. Um, but when I see veterans today, man, it's like it pulls my heartstrings, dude. And I know the federal government, we've got money, dude. So I try to give them as much resources as possible because these guys are fucking homeless. You know, they're not going to become millionaires to get free benefits to the federal government. It's just going to get them at least, you know, the basic necessities, at least in life. How many guys make it back on their feet? I think quite a bit, man, because, you know, in the medical charting, you know, when I work with county, you would see the same patient over and over again in the charting system. They keep they go in and out of the hospitals, uh, in and out of the system. Uh, these veterans are what I've seen so far is, is like first timers. You know, I think there's a lot of resiliency behind them. I, I think when they have case management structure set up for them, yeah, they they do well, right? Which that's how we operate in the military. But who who's right. following up? It's you, right? It's me or other case managers. But if right? they don't have cell phones and shit like that, how do you track them? They're, we provide them. We, we find avenues to get them cell phones or whatever they need. Right? So you basically restructure their lives so they can get back in to society. We try. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I have a lot of, compassion for this population because I, I understand them yeah um and then you know some come in and try to game the game um but you know these people that are trying to game the game they're they're hurting i know they are because why are they trying to fucking game the game first of all right <laughs> yeah um, and, and then for for not a whole lot of money and lot, not not a lot of resources right um so i hook them up you know yeah I, you know, I'm, I'm very ethical about things. I don't say, hey, man, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I was like, you know, I, I kind of guide them to these resources, you know, based upon their disabilities or whatever. Because, you know, I can try to empower them in, in, in a way like, hey, they're going to go after this resource because of X, Y, and Z. This is going to make me feel good to get help because I'm going to have a clearer head, right? And then maybe I can get my family back or whatever the case may be. Yeah. But it's, it's a rewarding job. You know, and I really appreciate it so far. I just, you know, I, I wouldn't have gotten to where I'm at today if I didn't resolve my own shit. Oh, absolutely. And that's something that <laughs> I want to talk about on the next, like, oh, of course, yeah. on the next thing with you, because that's deep. And I think that, um, yeah, we have to re we have to reschedule um, another um, sit down together and maybe do another few hours because I, I, I want to hear that side of it. I'm very interested in mental health and I love to hear how people get better and advance, yeah. you know? Yes. How much yes. of the homeless population in LA do you think is prior military? I can't remember the, uh, the numbers every year. There's a point in count. I think that's what they call where they actually physically go out in the community and count uh, homeless people, and to include obviously veterans if they're homeless. Um, 
I don't know any numbers, but I know I, I, I spoke to my old boss today who is a doctor for uh, USC, uh, LAC USC, and he lives in Brentwood, which is right next to uh, West LAVA. Mm-hmm. He said like he's watched the homeless population like explode out of proportion explode. because of this Corona number one, right? And just, you know, just poverty and untreated Man, it's no. crazy here in LA. I don't know if it's ever going to get better. It's an insane amount of homeless people now. I yeah, yeah. I, even, I just yeah. I don't see it getting better anytime soon. Right. Um, well, I, I spoke to another veteran, um, good friend of mine. She is a sergeant in LAPD, and she had a special task force. She, she was assigned to start a homeless program within LAPD, um, you know, connecting you know, people to resources, things like that. Well, they shut it down because of the, the cuts, the budget cuts oh. that's happening right now. So she told me like a very conservative thought, thought of the process of treating, um, you know, the homeless, give them options of substance abuse, you know, help. If they don't complete, go to jail. Yeah. You know, I, know I mean, there's, yeah, that's kind of conservative thought process, but yeah, I don't know if that'll help either. I, I don't know what the solution is, but for the VA, I think veterans know. I think the stereotype of the VA has has gone away from my experience of like a place where they're not going to help you. It's like you know, I am the front lines mm-hmm. of the VA. Yeah, you know, I'm the first impression that somebody gets, so I I'm there all about customer service. I want them to trust us as a VA because there's some really good people in the VA that just want to help veterans at that. Right. I, I see a lot of, a lot of good people. So you're a good man. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, thank you. <laughs> what um, if somebody comes in and they don't have a DD 214, which is, <laughs> I always think about that. Like, I don't have a DD-214. I got out honorably. I was discharged. I can't find my DD. Me, I'm like a functioning member of society and I can't find my DD-214. I have a, I have a, an old, like weird <laughs> copy, but it's missing yeah. the, the, I think there's like a part A and a part B to this thing and I can't yeah. find it. I was trying yeah. to do a home loan a couple of years ago and they asked for my DD-214 and I showed it to them and they're like, no, you're missing the first part. Okay. So then now it, it, it always fucks with me. I'm like, well, what about these homeless guys? How do they get into the system if you don't have a DD-214, if you can't prove it? Or is it already in the system? But guys like me in the 90s, we just, it was, everything was analog, you know? Right, right. So we help them. <laughs> we, help, we help get them. We reach out to National Archives um, and help them get a DD-214. Oh, shit. So you can help me get my DD-214? Actually, you can go, you can go online to yourself. Um, but most of these veterans don't have access to anything. So yeah. we help them. Um, yeah, believe it or not, that's, that's probably the, the probably number one barrier to getting housing <laughs> is all the documentation, right? So I, that, I think, yeah, that's what I think all the time. I look at homeless vets or when they're yeah. holding a sign, I'm thinking like, that's the first thing I go to is like, where's your DD-214s at? You know, like, <laughs> I don't have that shit, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you like yeah. How, how do you but, get well, anything? We, we, yeah. Yeah, we help them out. Um there's a lot of um forms to fill out that 
get these items for free. And right now, because of COVID, they're expediting these forms to try to get, you know, mm-hmm. veterans permanently housed. And they're building a lot of project-based housing. It's basically a new apartment complex um, that houses all veterans. Um, it's, it's a really good deal. And, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of good things about veterans. There's a lot of VA employees that were homeless. Oh, really? Um, yeah, there's a lot of them that you know, went through the system themselves and here they are, you know, in the capacity of helping another veteran. Um, I mean, there's, there's, man, there's some awesome guys that that I work with and gals, you know, I'm very, very proud to work in VA. And my problem is I got to keep work at work, you know, Um, I can't take it home. Yeah. I I think about these people, you know, and they pull my heartstrings, you know, yeah. Jesse, I would like to end on this hopeful note because it, it, we've we moved into a hopeful stretch. But again, I think um, sometime after um, the year, after the new year, we need to get back on and we need to dive deeper because I have like a thousand other questions. I mean, I always have these questions for people, but I have, a, I have so much more questions that require hours to get into. And I'm sure a lot of people are interested in the inner workings of your mind your process and how you you think and what you've um what you've gone through and how you bring that to the table to 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 help these vets you know thank you thank you so much uh for your service thank you for your service continually continued service at the va and i really appreciate you coming on and um sharing i mean i am blown away by how open you're able to, cause I kept asking you in the pre-interviews, you know, like, Hey, do you think you can open up? And you said like, nothing is off limits. And I, I really do appreciate, I, I thank you for the trust that you have in me to, to sit yeah. and, and talk yeah. to you about this stuff. I think when you share things and gets out there, it, it extinguishes it, right? The yeah. negative connotations about it, you extinguish it. It's therapy, dude, right? This is therapy. This is the way I see it. It's therapy. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm sure, man, I have to be sure I, that your mom and dad are so proud of you today. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah. How far you've come. Yeah. Yeah. So have a happy holidays and a wonderful new year. And we will talk again, um, you know, after the new year. And we'll yeah, man. another shot at this. Yeah, I want to get to know a lot more. Sure. It's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. All right, brother. All right, Jess. All right, brother. Thank you again. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.